Welcome to this episode of Agile for Agilists. I am one of your hosts, Brad Nelson, and with me as always is my partner, Drew Podwall. Hey, how you guys doing? So uh, an early trend in our podcast has been talking about how the past has affected us as Agilists. And in our first episode, Drew introduced himself and talked about his background. And one of the things that came up that I find very interesting is his military background. And I think that we tend to think of the military as being very anti-agile and and the opposite of agility. And I would say like management 3.0 and kind of these newer practices that we're promoting. And so I'm curious, Drew, if your experience in the military was was that, was anti-agile, would you say? So um, yes, no, maybe, right? There's a, a lot of different ways to look at it, right? So there's definitely toxicity within the military, right? From a leadership perspective, they, they teach you to kind of like look for the weak person on the totem pole and, you know, bully that person as a way of, of groupthink, right? But on the, the healthier side of the spectrum, there's, there's definitely leadership over management that is baked into the core mm-hmm. of, of the military background. You know, they develop us, right? Like, so I joined the Navy. I never worked on auto. I was an aviation electrician. I never worked on autopilot systems. I never worked on night vision goggles before. And they developed me to be able to be proficient at that and become more proficient over time. And, you know, there was cross-functionality that occurred as well because I initially I initially wasn't qualified to work on night mission goggles, but I thought they were really, really cool. Like who wouldn't think working on night mission goggles was really cool. Super and, cool. And so I hung out with the person whose job it was and who was qualified to work on them. And then when that person left, it became my responsibility. Even though I wasn't technically qualified from a training background, um, I was still able to work on them and service them. So the short answer is yes, no, or maybe, right? But you know, on, mm-hmm. within the, the healthy side of leadership in the military, the answer is most definitely yes. Awesome. Interesting. So you mentioned that they, they gave you the opportunity to learn. Would you say that they taught you the learning mindset or was it just learn this one thing and just do this one thing forever? No, absolutely. Right. Um, and like early in my career, I, you know, I realized that, that I hadn't gone back to college and I wanted to leave a job and get another job and leave a job and get another job. And early in my career, what I sold myself as, right, was I, I said, you know, I never learned how to work on night vision goggles or stuff like that when I was in high school, right? But the military taught me how to do that, right? And my first job out of the Navy was in semiconductors. And they hired me because they knew the military taught me how to be a troubleshooter, right? They taught me how to be quantitative mm-hmm. and qualitative mm-hmm. and analytical. And, you know, um, here's a problem that's in front of me. And what's my hypothesis for how to fix this thing? And let's try it. Let's see if it worked a little bit or if it didn't work at all. And let's, you know, change directions. And so absolutely, like that's core to the military background is is being that kind of troubleshooter. That's very interesting that you classify as a troubleshooter, because I think, especially because of media, movies, shows, we tend to think of the military as order takers, right? Just don't think, just do what I tell you to do. Don't question it. Yeah. You know, there is definitely some of that, right? Like when it comes to general housekeeping, right? Uh, Today's the day that we're going to clean up the barracks, right? Like the low man on the totem pole definitely gets the worst job and 
you know, and it gets incrementally better, you know, the, the, the higher up that you get in, in rank and whatnot. But when it comes to actually doing the job that you're doing in the military, right, or at least from my experience, that wasn't the case at all. You're being given problems to solve and they teach mm-hmm. you how to look at things and, and come up with that hypothesis. So like actually, so here's a good example, right? So I didn't work for squadron, right? Which meant that like, I didn't work on planes. I worked on the black boxes that came off the planes. And so in the uh, the systems that I was qualified to work on, there's like nine, 10, 12 different black boxes that make up that whole system. And so when a an amplifier comes into the shop because the squadron has troubleshot the system and said, we believe this is the problem. It's the amplifier and we get the amplifier. We have test benches that that mimic the other boxes that are in the system. And now we've put this, this amplifier in it and we connect it, but we have it open and we're making minute changes to see, all right, does this make it better? Does this make it worse? All right. We're probing for voltage. We're taking resistance meeting readings and things like that. And so, you know, you get this thing that is, it's not working, right? Or at least they say it's, it might actually, there were times where I would plug in and I was like, nope, this thing works, right? It, it passes mm-hmm. all the tests with flying mm-hmm. colors. That wasn't usually the case, but, um, you know, we're getting this thing with an unknown fault in it usually. And we're just trying to figure out what that fault is. And, you know, there were times like, so when I was out at sea on, on the John C. Stennis, like there'll be times where they've got a plane that's like loaded up on the catapult and like getting ready to go and they do the final checks and they realize like there's a fault in the system and they don't want to take the plane down. They don't want to take it off the catapult. So they remove that part and they come running downstairs with it. And everybody, the air boss knows about this. Everybody knows that now, you know, um, Petty Officer Podwall has this box and he's going to try and fix it. In those moments, it's like really like stressful, right? But that's like yeah. few and far between. Though you know that's that's not like run of the mill. Run of the mill, we're, we're downstairs and below flight decks, and you know we've got boxes that come in, and um, there's a general pace of things that allow you to just kind of like explore to try to figure out what the problem is. So. They don't just have another box they can swap in while you fix the first one? Well, okay. So usually they do, right? Usually they do. But sometimes um, if it's a part that breaks frequently and or or maybe there's a fault somewhere else on the plane that's causing that box to blow, you know, and they've replaced the box and now that the amplifier is blown again. And so they replace it with another amplifier and it's the last one. So the worst thing that they, what they want is they want you to figure out what the problem is, fix it quickly, bring the box back upstairs, plug it in, test it, and, you know, launch the plane off the 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 bow of of the ship. You know, kind of like with the and on cord, right? Like if you mm-hmm. get this box and you look at it and you like know right away, yeah, I'm not going to be able to do this within 15 20 minutes. Then they take the plane off the catapult and uh, bring it down to the hangar for, you know, repairs. Um, and they put another plane up on the catapult and uh, the ready next ready aircraft and and they launch that one. So there is like that concept of the and on cord as well. Interesting. Yeah. And so what you just just described, though, is is a test environment, a a physical one, but that's something we use in software development all the time. Yeah. Uh, And I'm hearing a bit of quality and and development troubleshooting there that you could easily map that over to software. Well, and not only that, like we do have a role, every workshop has the role of a QA inspector, right? And so after you're done doing your work, the QA person has to come over well, first, the work center supervisor, if I recall correctly, the work center supervisor comes over and verifies your work. 
right? And then the quality control inspector, I forget the title, but something like that comes over and then they put their stamp on. And then only after that can, can it, you know, either go back into the supply locker or go back to the plane. But, uh, you know, funny story is that like in, I went to aviation electrician school in, in Millington, Tennessee, just outside of Memphis. Once you go through the certain levels of training, then you go into the room where this system is, right? Um, you've learned it in the books. Now you're going to go learn it. And they have like these huge monolithic, like um, they look like just mainframes and they've got the whole aircraft system, you know, drawn on it, you know, and then and there's places where you can probe and there's places, you know, um, where you could take readings and whatnot. And your instructor programs a fault into the system. And then you come into the room and you've got to troubleshoot it and figure out the fault. Um, and if you, like, let's say if you probe for uh, resistance on a live wire, at the top is a big, huge flashing light, right? Like on the top of a police car and a siren. And it just suddenly the cherry starts, you know, flashing and strobing and a siren goes off, you know, because you, you can't probe for voltage or for, um, for uh, resistance with a live circuit. You'll blow your, your amp meter and do damage, right? So, but yeah, they've got these full systems and they program different faults into them so that you can practice and learn along the way. That's interesting. Yeah. Can, can you imagine in software development, if you, you had a company that had their product and they programmed in faults so that people could, could learn and troubleshoot it? Wait, have you heard of Chaos Monkey and Chaos Gorilla before? Yes. Yes. Yep. I mean, that's really what that is. It's, it's, you know, Chaos Gorilla, I think is there's like a data center where they program a fault into like one of the servers. And it's, um, mm -hmm. and, you know, hopefully the, the monitoring systems catch it, right? That's the first part of the test. And then once it catches it, then everybody's got to, you know, swarm to try to figure it out and implement a fix and test it and put it into production. And then that fault gets cleared. But Chaos Gorilla, for those who don't know, is Netflix will actually take out and uh, they'll program a fault into an entire data center that takes a regional data center down and then forces everybody to come together and swarm on it. So, you know, we do that a lot in the military as well. Like I wasn't involved in that kind of training too much, but like once or twice a day, you would hear over the loudspeaker on the aircraft carrier while we're underway, like in the Persian Gulf, in, 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 in a theater of combat, right? You would hear uh, like fire in main reactor room, away the reactor team. And, you know, you would turn white for a second because, you know, <laughs> you're on a nuclear powered aircraft carrier and there is now a fire in the reactor room. And five minutes later, you hear over the 1MC uh, reactor team is on station, right? And then five minutes later or 10 minutes later, like there's another announcement that is akin to, um, you know, they've commenced firefighting or whatever. Um, and then maybe like 30 minutes later, it's, you know, the fire is now under control. And then maybe 10 minutes later, the fire has been extinguished, right? And then like five minutes after that, it's fire in main reactor room number one has been fully extinguished. This is a drill. <laughs> and they're conditioning you to react as if it wasn't a drill, right? Like now the people who show up in the reactor room to go fight the fire and, you know, they see that there's, you know, no flames, like they know it's not a drill at that point. Right. But the rest of us in the ship don't know that. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're only hoping, you know. <laughs> Sweating bullets, losing some weight. 
there's a great episode of This American Life with Ira Glass and um, uh, I forget the other guy's name now, but um, they're on board the John C. Stennis a year after I was there, mm-hmm. right? And um, they comment on that in the episode. The episode is called, I think, Life in the Arabian Plin- Peninsula or something like that. And like Ira Glass and uh, God, I forget the other guy's name, but they wake up in a stateroom in the middle of the night because that announcement has just gone off and Ira Glass um, has turned on the recorder. And they're like kind of clutching each other, like, what do we do? What do we do? You know? Um, and they protect. <laughs> and I'm like, this is exactly how I felt when I was underway. So nice. So you mentioned Chaos Monkey, Chaos Gorilla. Those, my understanding, are programmed to attack random areas at an unknown time period in production. I don't know. Is is it random? Completely random? Nobody's actually plugging in. Like, there's no like senior leadership who's like, "All right, this is what we're going to do today." Or is it just totally a random? That is my understanding, and it's something. Yeah, you mentioned Netflix. I believe Amazon also does something similar. It's a great way of building resiliency into your system. Yeah. So there's definitely, I think, value in that when your system is not going to kill someone, <laughs> right? Randomly, like, oh, we're just going to randomly blow up a ship. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So I could see in the military, though, right, like that quality in those sorts of drills may be a little bit more controlled. But where a lot of organizations struggle is with production quality in their test environments, like truly being able to test at a a production level. And what I'm hearing is it sounds like uh, the Navy is really good at that. Yeah. I mean, I I would say the military, law enforcement as well, right? Like law enforcement are doing live fire drills. Yeah. You know, the thing that I find the most unnerving when I'm coaching is this this idea of, okay, yeah, let's, um, we've got in the backlog, you know, work to be able to have an improved live test environment, but uh, we don't want to work on that right now because, you know, we've got too much to do. And it's like, well, okay, but if we do work on this, you'll be able to do more of that stuff in the future, right? And uh, it's almost like the reverse of, uh, you know, there, there's like the reverse mindset of uh, robbing Peter to pay Paul, you know? Like in mm-hmm. this case, we do want to rob Peter to pay Paul, right? Because we're, we're going to wind up richer in the future if we, if we do this. Or maybe I'm getting the analogy wrong, but, mm-hmm. but something along those lines, I think, so. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I get where you're going with it. I, I think that's a, a huge struggle that I see with organizations or they're stuck in firefighting mode. And like, how do I ever develop anything new? Because I'm constantly fixing things. Yeah. And that's, you know, where like one of the things that, that I work with the organizations that I, that I start coaching is, you know, I asked to see their, their backlog of tech debt and nine times out of 10, that just lives in either, you know, one person's head or um, more likely lives in lots of people's heads, you know? So why, what I do in those instances is I say, all right, let's create a habit at the end of every sprint of Mm-hmm. Taking you know account of any tech debt that we've either created by mistake or observed along our our way, and let's just put it in a Jira and document it, right? Like in, in an idealized world, like you know you'll also get some time carved out to fix that at your you know discretion. But let's start by at least documenting it so we can know where it is. At danger of continuing us to to spin off the topic, yeah. you mentioned tech debt that is introduced by accident or observed, is there ever a time to purposely introduce tech debt? Well, I think that's like what we're talking about with creating a, a fire drill in the main reactor room, right? Where we're purposely creating 
like a significant level of tech debt. But I don't know. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's that's the example that I can think of. Is there something that you're noticing that I'm not? Because I would love to learn. <laughs> uh, it, it's just, it seems like another topic that's really common, especially in the firefighting mode where people get into like band-aid after band-aid after band-aid. They're like, well, we just got to, you know, it's a critical defect. Systems are down. We just have to band-aid it and get it back up. And then you, you just end up having, you know, a mile long band-aid sticking out of someone's arm that's still seeping and gushing blood and the band-aid's weighing them down and they can't move. Uh, yeah. was my, my visual for you all. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, there, there is another story I don't, that's uh, along those lines. This I don't really have any experience with this at all, but there is a, uh, and this is totally like right on the edge of PC, but there's a, a school called Goat School that field medics get sent to in the military. And what you do is you're out in the field and you're given a goat, an actual live goat. And you're supposed to take this goat from like, waypoint to waypoint to waypoint to get it to its extraction point or something like that. Meanwhile, there's like some sort of like special operations guy that's out there or woman that's out there as well. That's literally shooting your goat, right? That's trying to actively kill your goat and it's your job to keep your goat alive. Total animal cruelty, like for anybody listening to this, like I don't subscribe to this. I wouldn't ever like participate in it. But like, you know, like if you think about like, during Vietnam or you know World War II, like there there is this need to to have your medics be able to work in in a live fire environment, right? Like if a medic gets sent to the field in a combat zone and has never like experienced a bullet flying over their head, they might not perform in the way that you need them to perform. And so that's what this school is. Just, and I don't know if it still exists. It might not exist anymore. It definitely existed back in the 90s when I was in the Navy because um, I knew a few people who who went to goat school. But did we take too dark of a turn, Brad? You could totally like pull me out of it. <laughs> That's crazy. I'm like, I'm kind of speechless. I don't, I don't even know how to respond. Uh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they do the same thing with um, like air crew. Right, um, air crew go to a school called Seer School, Search, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. I think it is, and you get dropped in the middle of a forest somewhere with only the things that you might have on you if you crash landed in a helicopter or a plane. Right, um, so you've got like you know parachute silk, and you've got the stuff that's in your in your flight bag and and whatnot. And again, you have to get to the waypoint for extraction. Now, what they don't tell you is that once you get to the waypoint for extraction, you learn that that actually isn't a safe zone anymore and you get captured and you get to experience what it's like to be in a POW camp for a week where they're actually like, they're, they're like, they're they're physically violent to you and they're absolutely psychologically violent to you right mm-hmm. um like they're not allowed to like do any like physical permanent damage to you but it's you know um and i had a couple of friends of mine who were air crew who went went through that school and um now fortunately we're in software i'm going to pull it back right fortunately we're in software <laughs> and you know the the worst thing that we might ever have to experience might be you know getting um a paper cut from a a post-it note while we're running an inspect and adapt event or a weighted shortest job first workshop or, you know, 
you carpal know, tunnel. Yeah. Carpal you know. tunnel. Right. <laughs> Maybe, um, you get a little bit of a, a zap when you're trying to change your own, you know, Ram out of your, uh, your laptop, you know, by following, uh, Ooh, not. <laughs> um, but, um, <laughs> but you know, like yeah. th- there's definitely like this idea in the military of drilling, right? We drill and mm-hmm. we drill under as real conditions as we possibly can so that we can be prepared to deal with things as they arise. And the thing is like what Netflix gets and apparently what Amazon gets is that, yeah, it, you know, by programming this fault, this random fault into a data center, we are taking away time that our developers can, um, apply towards developing, you know, valuable features that our customers are waiting on. But the value of having them swarm together under pressure forces them to, you know, improve their collaboration under stress, forces them to improve their, like, all right, what's our hypothesis, right? Okay, this is what I think it is. All right, well, let's go explore this and try it out, right? Um, Forces them to be Mm -hmm. quantitative. So, all right, is it working as well as we thought it was going to work? Maybe, all right, let's keep going. All right, maybe not. All right, let's come back to the drawing board and come up with another hypothesis. Another example along those lines is, you know, I showed up to an accident once. I'm really good in emergency situations as as a result of my training, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I showed up to an accident in the Berkshires once. There were like three cars on the side of the road on a road that I used to travel all the time that I would never see a car on. And I stopped my car and I'm like, is everyone okay? And it turns out that there was a car that's like 60 yards into the woods. And the car had veered off the road and launched itself into the air. Like the telephone pole I now notice is now cut in half, like 12 feet in the air. This car like launched, sheared through a telephone pole, flipped and was in the woods. And so I'm like, well, has anybody gone back there to see if the person's okay? And they're like, we can't because there's too many prickers, right? So I'm the guy who now... (laughs) I've, I am now in charge, right? So, uh, because mm-hmm. I've realized nobody else is taking charge, I'm in charge. So I'm telling one person, go down the road to that house, call, you know, 911. This person, I'm like, all right, you stay here. I need to be able to communicate with you. I'm going in. And I go in. The person was in really, really bad shape. And so I find out that the police are on their way, emergency services are on their way. The first officer shows up and now I realize I am no longer the senior person in charge of this, you know, so I am pa- mm-hmm. I am passing the baton to this person and giving them the information that they need to know in order to be the leader now. And I'm asking them, what do you want of me to support you, right? Um, and in that case, they asked me to go out. They were going to go into the woods and to, you know, direct the, the fire crew and the uh, emergency services back to where they are uh, when they got there, right? And at each step of the way, when somebody senior to me is showing up, I'm asking them, what can I do to be of service to you, right? And so mm-hmm. in these kinds of situations where teams are swarming around um, you know, a problem, maybe the architect is there, maybe the architect isn't there, right? Maybe the lead developer for the team is there, maybe they're not, right? But you have to figure out like, who's in charge? What's the hierarchical leadership for solving this problem? And what is my role within solving this problem? And that's where leadership and teamwork really come to play. Because if everybody is, if, if, if everybody's able to put their ego aside for the person in the woods with a serious uh, injury, then that person has a greater chance of, of living. 
if everybody can put their ego aside for when there's a fault for a server or something like that, then we have a greater chance of, you know, getting this production fix out there rapidly and not losing money, you know, for whatever system it is that's now offline. Yeah. So you went where I actually had a no, I wanted to talk more about this because you brought it up the other day and I find it very fascinating. You maybe took a little bit of a darker kind of route there than I was <laughs> expecting. Um, but you had mentioned that one of the things you had learned in the military was how to take control of the situation and let go of control when someone else comes in that obviously should have control. And that really got me thinking because I don't think that is something that we typically pick up on in your normal corporate America. I, I think, I mean, there is some like seniority, you know, a director comes in, CEO, president. Yes, they're, they're the big dog in the room. But a lot of times, once you're a manager, you kind of have that like, oh, I'm the boss. Right. I'm the one in charge. I'm the one deciding. And, and you might not always be the, the leader of the situation or the best one to deal with the situation. So I, th I thought that was very fascinating. Yeah. You know, where I saw it work really well was I was on a coaching engagement where there was probably about six or seven coaches. Right. And we were all kind of like in different areas of the organization, both broad left to right and hierarchically top to bottom. Right. So there were some coaches that were primarily at the portfolio. Some were primarily at the program level. Some were predominantly like performance coaching the POs specifically. And then some were down at the team level and whatnot. The thing that worked really well in that engagement was that if a portfolio coach was having a challenge with trying to figure something out in our you know weekly or maybe daily scrum, right, that we had together as coaches, that coach at the portfolio level would bring up this impediment that they're experiencing with coaching at that at that layer and we all ideated and what i saw a couple of times was you know all right that coach realizes all right um you know Brad you seem to have a really good you know grasp on this solution and we all agree that this is you know the thing that we should try to deploy here why don't you um come with me to the next portfolio meeting right? Or, or whatever meeting it is, ceremony, event, one-on-one uh, -on -one or whatever. And now, you know, you're filling in and you're pinch hitting and you're assisting over there. But in a management world, it's like, okay, you're always going to be a team coach and you're always going to be a program coach and you're always going to be there. Mm -hmm. And we've set this up because this person has the most experience up here. This person has the least experience down here, you know, and neither the twain shall meet that you're, you're losing out on so much. You know, as a general rule of thumb, like people with more experience in certain areas tend to have, you know, a better grasp on things in those areas. But like to completely shut people out in that way isn't serving anybody. And so when I was underway and we would be working on, on parts, we would all pinch hit with one another, right? Like I would take interest in the systems that that person was working on because I wanted to learn about it, you know, and vice versa. And we all, we all learned from each other. Another cool area that I became responsible for, and I totally weaseled my way into this, was planes have what's called an eight-day clock. And it's a really, really cool like clock like with hands on it, right? Mm -hmm. and, and you wind it up and it will run for, it'll keep accurate time for eight days, right? Now, but the thing is, anytime anybody gets into the cockpit of a plane, whether it's the pilot or it's some of the ground service crew or somebody else, they just love that knob. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and so even though 
the guy who sat there before wound it up all the way, somebody else is winding it and now it's overwound. And so I got to be, you know, I got to work on these clocks that had these tiny little ruby jewels in them and tiny little gears and springs that would, and that was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed that. And if I wasn't curious, you know, I might not have ever had that opportunity, you know, but maybe somebody would have pulled me over one day and said, hey, would you want to learn about this? But uh, we all take interest in what the other one is doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a certain amount of vulnerability and I think psychological safety to be to required to be able to say, I don't know, or I'm not the best person for this situation. And then there's also a certain amount of curiosity in, I don't know, maybe even there's humanity in it of, you know, having interest in your colleagues. What is it that you're doing? How can I support you? How can I learn a little bit of what you're doing? Maybe I'll love what you're doing more than I'm doing now, and it's an opportunity for me to switch fields. But if nothing else, you know, how can I support you when you're overwhelmed? You know, we talk about the cross-functional team. A lot of people think of cross-functional teams as being like every developer's full stack. It doesn't have to be. Right? We just have to have the right skill sets within the team. But if each person only knows how to do one thing, and that person's out, or they get behind, or you just don't have other work that sprint. What are the other people supposed to do? Well, you know, we talk about T-shaped teams mm-hmm. where we want people to have, you know, broad knowledge, you know, across a lot of the area, right? And deep knowledge, you know, with, with some of the areas, right, that a team is working on. And we want like people to recognize that whatever your T looks like when you come in to a team, it should continue to evolve over time. But uh, yeah, like the idea of everybody should know everything like that, that doesn't work. That just can't work. You know? Um, yeah. I like T-shaped teams, right? T-shaped people on T-shaped mm-hmm. teams. Yes. Yeah, so something else I've, I've heard with the military is there's a strategy, right? Eisenhower's quote, there, there's a planning is valuable. Uh, the plan is worthless or something like that. I'm probably butchering it in a paraphrase, but uh, the idea that there's this strategy and there's this plan going forward, but teams outside of the, the purview of the top officers are able to self-manage and have some autonomy to respond to the situation based off of what they think is best. And that's interesting to me because that is a pretty big tenant, I think, of agility is that decentralization right? and, and the need of having a strategy and a plan from, C, from senior leadership and a vision, but then also allowing and entrusting your team once they're out in, we'll say, the field. Uh, to make the right decision and do the right things. Well, so I think it was after Vietnam, right? At least with the special forces units, they were given missions that were specific to the outcomes that that mission was designed to achieve, right? So the example there that I've always heard, obviously, never been special forces, but um, um, you know, if you're told that you've got to take, you know, Hill number Bravo Zulu one three. Tango Kilo, right? Then, you know, that's the hill that you've got to take. Um, And if when you get out into the field, you realize that it is absolutely unsafe to take that hill, we're going to incur a lot of casualties if we try to do that. During the Vietnam War, you just trudged up that hill because you were told to do that. Mm -hmm. The shift after that was, you know, it's not we need you to take that hill. It's we need you to take that hill because tomorrow morning at you know oh five hundred hours we're going to be moving the platoon and the regiment up through this valley and we need you to be able to to provide Overwatch, right? So now when they get into the fields and they know that all right we got to take this hill 
this hill is not safe for us to take. They know the reason why we're trying to take the hill is to provide overwatch. And so if they are now in the field and they are like, all right, we could provide great overwatch from this hill as well. And, you know, um, as long as we also take this hill. And so let's divide the, the unit and, you know, you three are going to provide overwatch from this hill and you three are going to provide overwatch from this hill. And now we've got good coverage over the valley. And now the platoon or regiment or whatever it is can, can march through that valley uh, the next morning. So that's the shift, right? The shift is, and I know like, you know, not all soldiers know the outcomes for their missions, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, but, um, you know, but that's the big shift is that uh, the special forces units are given complex problems to solve in order to create specific outcomes that enable the strategy to flow through the system, right? I know that's simplifying mm -hmm. it in a, in a software way, but, um, you know, much like if, if you're, teams are given outcomes and problems to solve, which is a feature written as a problem, as opposed to a highly architected solution, they're going to be able to see those hills that aren't safe within that feature um, and be able to still achieve the outcomes for you. So, And it's a weird thing, right? Like, It baffles me that organizations don't trust that, right? It's, they, they mm -hmm. don't trust the idea of wait a minute, I need to tell them exactly what they should be doing, right? Because otherwise they won't give me exactly what I want, right? Um, versus right. I need to tell them the problem that I need for them to solve with the outcome that I'm trying to achieve so that they can you know, self-organize and innovate a solution. Maybe come up with an MVP that's a little bit more simple than the one that I might've come up with if I gave them a solution, so... Yeah, and you touched on on complex situations in, in lean change management. They talk about the difference between complicated and complex, and, and we love to use very similar words. I guess they're easy to remember, but they're confusing when we're explaining things. So you mentioned earlier fixing a watch. A watch is a very complicated mechanism device. However, everything has a known place. We know where everything goes, even though it's very complicated, and therefore there's a set guidelines and rigor to what we have to do to, to create, build, repair a watch. Now, a, a complex problem is something where we don't know everything. We don't know everything up front, right? There's not just one way to deal with this situation. And that's what software development is typically, right? There's not just a, you know, we just do this one thing every single time and, and we get this outcome. And I don't think it's like the, the technology is part of the challenge, but it's also the outcome we're trying to achieve, the problems we're trying to solve. And we don't know how our users are going to respond to this solution to that problem. Well, it, and, and that's the power of Agile, right? Yeah. And we also, like, we don't know how, like, so like the watch, right? Like, let's say, you know, yeah, if, if we wanted to create watches, we would just need to come up with an architecture design for a watch. And now it's a manufacturing process, right? Um, but let's say we want to create mm -hmm. a brand new watch the likes the world has never seen. One that is able to, you know, predict my mood based on my astrological sign, as well as the astrological sign of the people who I'm engaged with, um, and be able to, you know, signal to me when I sh I'm, I'm pressing too hard, you know, on a sales pitch or, you know, need to lean back a bit, right? Like the world has never seen a watch like that, right? So, 
we just need to come up with, well, what's our hypothesis here, right? Like, what's the problem? What are the little problems that we want to be able to try to solve for? All right. Well, the outcome that we're trying to achieve is we want to create a device that's going to indicate to the person wearing it that maybe they're being too aggressive in the conversation. And, you know, all right, well, you know, the hypothesis was that we're going to do that off of astrological sign, but maybe there's another way for us to, you know, um, get a sample data on that, that doesn't have anything to do with astrological sign or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, now you got me thinking of a a product for coaches, right? Um, but um, <laughs> but no, it's like we're building something the world has never seen before, or we're we're building a system, a suite of systems that this configuration, the world has never seen before, right? Um, and you know, it's a journey. I, I was actually on a call last week. Your friend Mark was talking about empirical anecdotes. I think he called it, and and this was, um, metaphors, metaphors, yeah. right? Um, yep. Somebody was talking about how they were like, you know, in, it was an open space about the topic of lean. Um, and we wanted to learn more about lean, the, the coaches that were on this call. And uh, there was a coach who was very familiar with lean. And they said, you know, the thing about lean is that like much like gardening books versus architecture books, if you read a book about architecture, the book is going to be titled after the architect, right? Whereas if you read a book about gardening, it's going to be... A, the title of the book is going to be about the, the the garden or the the context or the the geographic location or the temperature or you know whatever it is. It's not you know the, the gardener's name. And they said that you know lean is the same sort of way, right? If you read books about agile, you know usually they're tied to like big names, but you know lean books aren't. Um, and it dawned on me, projects are like architecture. Right, projects are like building a house because you build a house, mm-hmm. and chances are you're going to move into it. And you know, maybe you do maintenance, maybe the boiler blows, and you got to replace the boiler, or you know, maybe you put, uh, you know, you take down the deck in the backyard and you put up a new deck with you know uh, synthetic wood or whatever. Or, but for the most part, when you buy a house, you're moving in and you're planning on living there for a while, right? Mm-hmm. Product development in the digital world is more like building a garden because with a garden, you've got to visit it on a daily basis. You got to look at the soil. You got to pick the soil up. You got to smell it. You got to feel it. You know, what's the humidity of the soil? Um, you've got to look at the leaves. Are the leaves to my plants nice, bright, and green and broad, or are they curling? Are they curling up or are they curling down? Because those have different meanings. Um, I forget. One of them is like over fertilization and one of them is something else. But then we, we started talking about this idea, right? And uh, somebody said, well, you know, in the garden metaphor, who's the product owner? Um, I was like, well, the gardener is the product owner. The people maybe at market are the um, are the uh, the customers, right? That might be one persona. Another customer persona might be, um, you know, your family. And uh, and we started really going on this this analogy, and and it is like developing a digital product is like cultivating a garden. Or the other analogy that somebody brought up after that is. I don't know if you've ever had like a real fish tank with like real live plants in it, right? Like if you mm-hmm. if you neglect the fish tank, it's going to turn green really, really fast, especially if there's live plants in it. You know, you've got to balance the pH, you've got to balance the um, the CO2 and oxygen um, and the nutrients and all of that. And um, people want to believe that it's like building a house and it's not. 
So mm-hmm. I like that. I'm not to process that for a little bit, but yeah, yes. And, and fish, I, I'm sure a lot of people make the mistake of, oh, it's a fish. It, it's not a lot of maintenance until you get into the aquarium maintenance makes up for any of the other maintenance. I've had aquariums before. Um, I had a CO2 tank that was connected to my aquariums and I had uh, a, a meter in there that would, you know, gauge the uh, the level of, of CO2 in the water and would either slowly bubble CO2 or turn it off. You know, people overstock their fish tanks. They overfeed their fish. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure like if we unpack that, there's going to be a lot of like analogies with overfeeding and yeah, like adding the wrong fish, right? Like would be mm-hmm. like adding the wrong feature. You know, like uh, we think we want this feature, but it's the wrong feature for us to do. It's definitely sequence wise. Um, so, and then it eats your other features. Eats your other features. Yeah, hate it when that happens. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I definitely had fish that ate other fish, and it was like I wanted that fish in my tank more than I more than I you know believe that that was the wrong thing to do. You know. Like, I want to release this feature more than I believe that it's the wrong thing for us to do right now. And that's right. that's where they go wrong. But we're totally off track All from right. a military perspective. We are. Yes. Yep. Yep. So I was about to pull us back. Uh, one of kind of the last thoughts or questions I had for you is, you know, we went kind of down the dark path. We We touched on very briefly some of the toxicity from your time in the military. But what I've heard is that there's been, I mean, there was a known PR problem there. And supposedly they've addressed that. Supposedly the military has gotten nicer. And I'm curious if you feel, and I know you haven't been in since it's gone nicer or more Gen Z friendly or whatever we want to call it, but I'm curious, do you believe that this more mean or I'll say cruel version of the military that you went through had a benefit to it in the way you developed and in the way you interact today? Um, God, there's so many ways to answer that question. But, um, you know, first of all, I'll say like, you know, the military supports the war machine, right? So, you know, there's only so nice that it can actually be because, you know, at the root of it, you're, you're enlisting people or whose job it is to either directly kill somebody or support the killing of somebody. Um, you know, now the other side of that question is like, all right, the the new Navy, the nicer Navy, right? Like, you know, there's less, there's definitely a lot less hazing, right? Um, and um, when I was in, we had the option to opt out of hazing, right? Like, um, yeah. um, and I opted in, um, I opted in, my grandfather was, you know, I don't really come from a military family, but my grandfather was a gunner's mate in the Navy during World War II. And he just has great Mm -hmm. stories. And like, I knew that like the hazing that I was a part of, nobody was getting hurt, right? Like it was like right on the edge of like, you could get hurt. Um, And because like, no, not everybody had to participate. um, And we respected those who didn't want to participate, right? Like, um, but like, for instance, when you, when you cross the equator, um, in order to cross the equator, the, the ship has to stop and ask King Neptune's permission to cross into his royal domain. And so there's a ship crossing ceremony. I've got my coin right here. This is my shellback coin. 
And, and this still happens. Like it happens on cruise ships. It happens on merchant marine ships. Like, um, it used to be that if you didn't ask King Neptune's permission, it was bad luck to cross the equator. And so all ships mm-hmm. stopped. And the thing is, is that if you'd never crossed the equator before, you're a dirty, filthy, slimy polywog. Right. Um, and if you have <laughs> crossed the equator before, you're a, a, a right and trusty shellback. Right. And so on the day that you cross the equator, the shellbacks get to haze the polywogs. Right. Um, you know, I got somebody crammed lard in my ear. Like like actual like Crisco like and it was crammed in my ear so bad that I wound up with an ear infection like you know um, and not bad I mean I was able to like irrigate it and but um but it was a lot of fun right like you you, you sing all these stupid sea shanties you know you you climb through huge um, containers like the containers that the jet engines get shipped in like huge jet engines get shipped mm-hmm. in um, a week before you cross the equator the captain orders the galley to stop throwing the excess food overboard and they fill up these aircraft containers, uh, jet engine containers, and you got to swim to them or through them, right? So you're swimming through rotten, putrid, rotten food. Um, but then at the yeah. end is King Neptune's court and you bow in front of King Neptune and like literally like grown men and women sailors are dressed up like, I think it's the senior most enlisted sailor dresses up as King Neptune and then there's the, the junior most enlisted sailor and then the junior most enlisted officer are all dressed up as the members of the royal court. And um, when you finally get through the end of the day to the royal court and you ask their permission uh, and, and you know, if they don't like you or they, you look at them wrong, they'll make you go back and do it again or whatever. But when you finally get through, you're just, you're bruised, you're, you're covered in filth, but you feel like you are part of a team. You know, uh, and mm. and not just the mm. team of the people who are doing this with you today, and not just the, the team of people of the the now you're a, you're a, a shellback, right? Um, so not just a team with the other shellbacks on the ship, but like I have a photo album of my grandfather's shellback ceremony, and and I felt this connection with him as a result. Now back then they got hurt. They really hurt people, um, you know. Um, <laughs> they're they're hardcore. I don't believe, you know, like I mean, it's so hard to say. Like toxic hazing, where people actually get hurt, like can can get really hurt, where people don't have a choice to participate or not, where where people are absolutely humiliated for the sake of knocking them down and brutally humiliating them. Absolutely wrong, right? But like mm-hmm. what we did was really kind of fun and games. Nobody came away from there, like, um, at least I, I don't think anybody came away from there um, broken, like totally broken. So I think mm, my headset, mm, I think my battery yeah. just died on my headset, actually. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> so does that mean you can't hear me at all? No, I, I could hear you. Oh, so I guess my oh, battery didn't die on my headset. Something. Yeah. Anyhow. All right. Um, uh, so. But there's one thing we're, I we're much- I do want to bring up one more thing, right? Like. Um, I always describe being in the Navy, like being on a road trip with your friends from college, right? And you've got like, Mm -hmm. you're in a car, the car is now broken down. You have no idea what's wrong with it. It's 105 degrees outside. You've got a collective total sum of like $35 and 73 cents to to everybody's name. Um, It really sucks. But there's a case of beer in the back of the car. You're there with all your best friends and you know, no matter how much it's going to suck, it's going to make for an amazing story that, you know, 
20 years later, when you get out of the Navy, 30 years later, when you get out of the Navy, you're going to be able to share with your shipmates and be like, remember that time we were driving across country? Like it's really bonding. So, Mm -hmm. um, but the last thing that I want to say in closing is, is that if you're looking to hire a scrum master, consider, please consider looking to hire somebody with the military background. Please consider looking for a veteran. It's not very difficult to go on LinkedIn to, you know, put some of the keywords in if you're a recruiter and and search for somebody, you know, with a scrum master background and a military background, right? Or somebody with a leadership military background, right? Uh, and if you don't know how to do this, reach out to me if you're a recruiter and you're wanting to hire more veterans. I used to be the co-chair of HBO's Veteran Employee Resource Group. And I worked with um, HR there to um, improve the number of veterans that we were hiring. And the thing is, they, they had no idea how to do that. Like they had no idea how to tweak, mm-hmm. you know, what to search for to hire veterans. Veterans make amazing leaders. Veterans know that if they're showing up on a scene of something, am I in charge or are you in charge? And if I'm not in charge, how can I be of service? You know, they're great at that. So if you are looking to hire a scrum master or you're looking to expand the number of veterans in your company, definitely reach out to me and I, I would love to help with that. Hello at agileforagilists.com. Yeah. A direct line in. Yeah. And if you're a veteran um, and you're looking to become a scrum master, right? Or you're looking to learn about agile, right? I have open office hours, unlimited open office hours for veterans. So if you're a veteran and you're listening to this, it doesn't matter if you got out 20 years ago and you're senior already in your career. If you want to know more about this, I have unlimited open office hours for veterans. Awesome. Awesome. That's very generous. And you do volunteer work actively with veterans, correct? I do. Yeah. In fact, uh, this Friday is um, fallen.org is having a hackathon that's starting early evening East Coast time. I forget what it actually is, the hours, but I can get it for you. So um, uh, it's a great hackathon. It'll be, I think, my third or fourth that I've participated in. It's just really cool. There's lots of like the veterans who are like, usually they're in veterans, they're in coding boot camps right now, right? Lots of veterans who are just mm-hmm. like, they just got out of the military. They've got lots of money in their pocket um, to spend on education and they're interested in software development. And so if you're looking for veteran developers, this is a great resource as well. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Agile for Agilis. We support our veterans. We love you. Thank you for your service. Thank you, Drew. Anything else that you want to to mention? I know we're a little over, but anything else you want to mention in, in closing? Uh, oh, wow. Um, I wasn't prepared for this. I used up my thing that I wanted to mention in closing earlier, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> Just thank you so it, much. It was a good one. Thank you. It was a good one. Yeah. Uh, thank, thank you for sharing, Drew. I appreciate it. And, and I know our listeners will too. Awesome.